Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We've been looking at Athens, haven't we? And we've been seeing uh, what the city was like, its history, its religion. And we've emphasized the most important aspects of some of the lives of its inhabitants. That is that like all of us human beings in whatever age, in whatever place, they and we share one thing in common, that we are sinners. And people here in Athens, of course, very much like many people today, are people who think they know absolutely everything. It's the center of intellectual development of the world. It's the place where the academics come to discuss the latest ideas. The philosophers and the playwrights and the poets, the great democrats of their day, they gather together at Athens. People who think they know everything. And yet, as we seen last week, there was one important fact that they didn't know. And we finished in verse 23 with those words, the unknown God. They knew everything, but they didn't know the most important thing of all. They didn't know God who created them. They didn't know the only God who reveals himself in general in the creation, in particular in Scripture, in person, in his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, that God will require an account of their lives and will find them wanting. So Paul correctly sums up the spiritual condition of his listeners. Last week, we found what that was. We found that spiritually, these Athenians had idle curiosity. And we discovered that they had an impotent religion. And we found that they had ignorant hearts. So Paul begins his defense of Christianity before the great men of Athens, the great court of the Areopagus the intellectual meeting place of the day. And he begins to address their condition. And he starts by explaining about the God whom the Athenians don't know. And basically and broadly, we can summarize it like this. We can say that Paul told them that day that God is the creator that God is the one who not only creates the world, but who every day sustains it. And then that God is utterly self-sufficient. So we'll expand on those for a few moments this evening. God is the creator. Well, we'll look back at that verse, Acts chapter 17. And we're going to start with verse 24, where Paul is declaring unto them that God made the world and all things therein. Paul begins this great uh, defense of the faith 
right where the Bible begins. He begins with creation. He makes no concession whatsoever to Greek ideas about creation. Um, the Greeks, of course, were philosophers by and large, many Greeks. Many Greeks were like the Gnostics. They believed that God was away remote, that he was transcendent, that he was so transcendent and so far away from humanity that he would never get his hands dirty making a world, forming it out of dust. How could the God who is eternal and who is transcendent and who is, in their eyes, unconcerned with the affairs of mankind, how could that God ever stoop to the level where he would form a world out of dust and make any material entity? For to the Greek philosophers, by and large, material equals evil. So the Greeks worked out that there must be some kind of a go-between what they would have called an emanation. Perhaps uh, uh, they would use the word a demiurge, uh, a go-between God, series maybe even of go-between gods, a series of emanation finally resulting in some kind of a half-human, half-God who would create the world. That was what the Greeks thought. Paul makes no concession whatsoever to such nonsense, to atheism. He simply begins where the Bible begins, straight to the biblical account of creation. He teaches them the doctrine of God, that God made the world. When we say the Apostles' Creed, we do, don't we? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's fundamental. God is our creator, first and foremost. It is a fundamental understanding of the nature of God. God created the world. He created the world for his glory. He didn't have to create the world. He created the world because it pleased him to create the world in order that his divine power could be demonstrated so that his wisdom could be made known, so that he could lavish his goodness and his love upon his own creation. His unique act of creation is for the purpose of bringing all praise and glory to God forever and ever. Why did God create us? What's the purpose of man? To bring glory to God. Biblical doctrine of creation is firmly fixed in Scripture. He created the world for his glory, and he created the world out of nothing. What existed before creation? God did. And our human minds, limited by the constraints of what we understand to be time and space, simply cannot take this in. We can't hope to comprehend it, this side of eternity. The Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 9 tells us that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them. And yet, he did it all in six days. 
Don't you literally believe that? I hope you do. I had a young assistant once when I was in a church in Belfast. I had a young assistant who was very impetuous. And we were having a group Bible study and he was talking about creation. And one of the deacons in the church protested slightly. And he says, but you know, I don't believe in a literal six-day creation. And my young assistant says, why not? And he says, because that's faith. That's, 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 that's a faith thing. Well, you see, it's not. Thankfully, that young fellow knew more about the Bible than the, than the deacon did. You must literally believe this. There are Christians, including some years ago, and perhaps still the, the principal of a local evangelical college who believed that the six-day creation was not to be taken literally. And have you heard the absolute furore in the media about the election to a political leadership in this country of an evangelical Christian? I'm not telling you to vote for him or anything like that. We're getting involved in politics. I mean, one of the complaints that they have, do you understand this man is a creationist? How on earth can we have a creationist sitting in, what a dinosaur! How can such a person be a leader in this country? Why, why are the liberal classes so vehemently opposed to God's creation of the world? I'll tell you why. It's because creation is the very core doctrine of the scriptures. Because God created us. And because God created us, we owe him. And he created us in six days. In Exodus, the six-day creation of Genesis is given moral authority in the Torah. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, where we're talking about the, the Lord's day, the Sabbath in the Jewish sense. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thy labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Now, you know, when the Jews looked at that, they didn't think to themselves, oh, that's not a literal week, you know. That's not a literal seven days. That's, that's thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of so we'll only have a sabbath day every 500 years did they say that not at all it was a literal six days jesus sanctioned that in the gospel of john chapter 5 he said do you not think do not think that I would accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. He's talking to the Jews. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me. For he wrote of me. All of the Old Testament is about Christ. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. He wrote of me. Jesus then said in verse 47, 
But if ye believe not his, Moses' writings, how shall ye believe my word? He does it again in Luke chapter 13 when he speaks about the Sabbath. One gospel preacher gave a very good reason why he believed in a literal six-day creation. He simply said, I believe it because I wasn't there when it happened. So I prefer to take the word of someone who was. And that's Jesus. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, created all things. He was there when that six-day creation happened. Colossians chapter 1, I believe, is the correct reference. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, by Christ. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, or thing, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He created the world. God created the world for his own glory. God created the world out of nothing. God created the world in six days, and God's creation work was perfect. And when he made this world, because he made it for his glory, he made it a perfect world. But not only did God create the world, but if you look back at our text for a minute, you'll see that he also completed it. In the sense that he crowned his creation, he created all things that are in it. Verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein. Now I'm going to say that includes you and me. And here's why. A few months ago, I think it was around about February, March time, uh, there was a trailer being shown on television. You know what a trailer is? It's an it's a advertisement for a forthcoming programme. That was being shown. And it was for a program, a television doctorate called Perfect World. And the trailer was being voiced over by none other than David Attenborough, the high priest of greenness. And he was describing the wonder of nature. And he was describing in the, in the trailer how we were living in perfect synchronicity. How there was a fully balanced natural environment until this great plague swept the earth. What is this great plague? Humans. Did you hear that trailer? Well, God created the world and everything in it. As if it wasn't enough that God created the world in six days perfectly for his own glory, he filled it with good things. He created the flora and the fauna that will inhabit this world, and he created mankind, men and women. And look at the complexity of that. He created us as moral beings. 
made with the conscience and an ability to choose what is right and wrong, even though now we always by nature choose what is wrong because of our sin. In Eden, everything was good and pleasing to God. Mankind made specifically for communion with God, made in his own image, made to reflect his glory into the world made with immortal souls so that they could dwell with him forever and ever, enjoying his presence and glorifying his name. God is the creator. I have to watch my time. But the next thing we see in Paul's defense here is that God is not only the creator, he is the sustainer. His providence sustains this world. It says here that uh, he is the Lord of heaven and earth who dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Lord's Day 9 in the Heidelberg Catechism says that the God who created us still upholds us and governs us by his eternal counsel and providence. Those Greeks who believed in a God who was somehow involved in creating would have believed that the God who created the world wasn't particularly interested in the world that he created. Like the 19th century deists who believed that God created the world and then stepped back and left it to its own devices. They used the illustration, didn't they, of the master watchmaker who creates a beautiful watch and who completes it and winds it up and sees that it's working and then hands it over to the person who has bought it and takes nothing more to do with it. That's not the God of Paul. Paul teaches here that the God who created this world is intimately involved in it, right down to the point where he even provides the very food that sits on your plate every day. Psalm 104, verse 27. All those who wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in the season, that thou mayest give, that thou givest them, they, that thou givest them, they gather, that thou, thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, and they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, and they die and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, and they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. Listen, we owe everything we have to God. Even the very breath that we take this minute is given to us as a gift of God. And not only to us, but God feeds and sustains his entire creation. Those little birds that float about in the sky, fly about in the sky, they are his creation. Jesus said that sparrows, two sparrows are sold for a tiny amount of money. Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father knowing about it. God upholds this world and he governs it and he does it with divine wisdom and divine providence. And he does it through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1, that very special passage that introduces the book of Hebrews, God 
hath in these days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and listen, and upholdeth all things by the word of his power. Got to move on. God created us. God's providence sustains us. And lastly, I hope this isn't a shock to you, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. God is self-sufficient. Paul's third proposition about this God that the Greek philosophers don't know is that the God who created the world and who holds it all together doesn't need me. No matter how important I think I am. Don't forget that those Greek philosophers in Athens were the cleverest, most erudite people in the whole world. Anybody who was anybody in education wanted to be in Athens. The men of the Areopagus were the cream of the crop. They were full of their own self-importance. They more they had more higher opinions of themselves than even Meghan Markle has. But God doesn't need them. Verse 24. This God dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. He doesn't need our vain works. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. The Almighty God, who was powerful enough to create the universe, doesn't need us to build him a house or a temple in which he can dwell. He's quite capable of doing that all by himself. The Jews laboured under a similar misapprehension. It led to their downfall. In the Old Testament, before the fall of Jerusalem, they viewed the temple as a kind of a lucky charm, a talisman, an amulet, a guarantee of the city's immunity from destruction because they thought God dwells in the temple and the temple therefore can never fall. And because the temple can never fall, Jerusalem is secure forever. How wrong they were. Jeremiah the prophet was despised by the Jews when he preached this message in Jeremiah 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. God doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands. He doesn't need our vain works. He doesn't need our vain worship. Verse 25. Neither is he worshipped with men's hands. Psalmist echoes this in Psalm 50. Verse 12 says, If I were hungry, this is God speaking, I would not tell thee. For the world is mine in the fullness thereof. 
Will I eat of the flesh of bulls or drink of the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving. Pay thy vows unto the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Do you see what he's saying in the psalm? He's saying, I don't need your offerings. I don't need you to, to, to feed me. You, the Lord owns the whole world. He doesn't need you. It's the opposite. You need him. You need him. The truth is that we are totally dependent upon God. Look at how Paul expresses this in verse 25. He giveth to all life and breath and all things can't do without a breath. And yet God gives it to you every single day. It's to him that we owe every breath that we take back to that catechism lesson in, chapter, in Lord's Day 9. And the catechist says, In whom I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God. He is willing to do so as a faithful Father. We need him in order to be assured of heaven. We need him every day of our lives. Think of it like this. Think of your life right now, your dependence upon God as you being on a life support machine. God has you on a life support machine right now. He gives you your life. He gives you your breath. He gives you everything that you need for life. One Lord's Day afternoon, back in the early 2000s, I got a telephone call around lunchtime from a nurse in the Royal Victoria Hospital. I was told where to come to, I was told which particular building and which ward to go to, because a lady who belonged to our church had had an operation for cancer. Sadly, the operation had not been a success. And for the past week or so, she'd been kept alive on a life support machine. Her life, and her breath, and all the things that she had was in the hands of a doctor. The medical staff had decided that the machine would be turned off, and her family acquiesced. But they had said to the doctor and to the nurses, we'd like our pastor to come and to pray with us before the machine is switched off, before her life ends. When I got to the hospital, I found that the family were gathered round her bed. And I went into the cubicle, the wee cubicle, I gathered the family round the bed 
and we bowed our heads and we thanked God for Lily's life, for who she was. And we thanked God especially that she knew the Saviour and that in a few minutes' time she would be rejoicing in her Saviour's presence. When I got to the end of the prayer, it was as simple as one of the medical staff reaching out raising a switch and I stood with her husband my arm around him and we watched as the breath went out of her body the steady rise and fall of her chest as the machine was pumping the air in and out of her just stopped and everything was still and she was gone it was over and her life ended very quietly and very peacefully she went to be with the Lord you see according to Paul talking to the people of Athens God has every one of us on a life support machine he is giving to us our life and our breath and all things And you see, one day he will switch it off. It's already predetermined for you. One day, that exact moment is already decided. The divine support that keeps you and I living and breathing will be over. And on that day, our life will end. And the very minute that that switch, metaphorically speaking, is turned off, we will stand before God for it is appointed unto men once to die and after the judgment and on that day when our divine life support ends we need the Lord we need him we need for him to acknowledge us as being his we need him to confess before our Father, our Heavenly Father, that we are his. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 8, Also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. We need Christ. We need God. We need him for life. We need him for our breath. We need him for our food. We need him for our provisions. But we need him for eternity. We need his salvation. We need the Lord Jesus. So Paul has begun his defense of Christianity. To the intellectually minded, sin-blinded pagans of Athens by teaching them about the God that they don't know. And next week, God willing, we'll see him introducing another important fundamental doctrine when he teaches them about mankind and how we stand before that God. <laughs>